Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Tuesday morning, the 15th of August. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. On Monday, the Obelisk Bridge in Drada is to close to traffic. The road was to close in the first of uh, this month for maintenance work. Um, the bridge, but that will take up to 10 months to complete. Now, that work was delayed over the course of uh, the last couple of weeks, four, three weeks, amidst huge public concern about the consequence for traffic, not just on the slain Drogheda Road, but also how traffic across the town of Drogheda is expected to back up, causing severe congestion for the bones of a year. Everyone agrees that work on the bridge needs to be carried out, and there is a con- Census locally, it would seem that at a minimum the toll on the Donor ramp must be lifted for the duration of the works if complete traffic chaos is to be avoided. But that is not the complete consensus. Uh, Let's hear a little bit more uh, about this because it's Transport Infrastructure Ireland who would negotiate the toll being lifted and uh, Labour Party TD for Louth and Eastmead, Jed Nash, who's come into it, has written to TII uh, and uh, they've said the opposite to you. They believe that lifting the toll would actually compound the traffic problem in Drogheda. The the logic of their position, Michael... (sighs) really beggars belief um, I've been in very frequent contact with them uh, over the last uh, few weeks and with uh, Minister Ryan by way of parliamentary question um, trying to make the case for the toll on the Denor Road ramps to be lifted to avoid the traffic chaos that you describe will happen I think it's inevitable mm. uh, I was actually out at the Obelisk Bridge yesterday um, I was walking out there at lunchtime and even on a Monday in the middle of August mm the level of traffic on the bridge. Uh, Local taxis, um, uh, small vehicles, people going about their work, 
fans and so on um, was quite extraordinary. Mm. So It's extraordinary then in the mornings and particularly when the school comes back in a a couple of weeks. It is, and and, and this is the point. Um, I'd originally asked uh, Minister Ryan from a policy point of view to consider this. Based on, on, on the idea that last year or earlier on this year he um, decided um, for good reason to uh, ensure that the uh, inflation-led um, toll increase that everybody was expecting to come into place earlier this year would be delayed by six or seven months. That cost about £12.5 million. Uh, And when I say cost, what, what's involved there is the Department of Transport or TII, Transport Infrastructure, mm. subsidising the toll companies mm. for the loss experienced. So... He has form here. Mm. Uh, he has done this before to try to soften the blow of uh, toll rises for people across the country. Mm. Um, that cost €12.5 million. Euros. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, I asked him and Transport Infrastructure Ireland to inform me as to what level of revenue was generated by the Dunor Road ramps, uh, toll ramps, uh, last year and the year before. And I was told last year €4 million Euros was generated by local motorists for Celtic Roads mm. Group using those tolls. So on a pro-rata basis, uh, the maths would suggest that over a nine-month period, it would cost Minister Ryan and Transport Infrastructure Ireland €3 million Euros to, uh, to, to remove uh, those uh, t- tolls uh, to allow for the obelisk uh, bridge works to uh, be carried out and to avoid total traffic mm. chaos and drama. He and Transport Infrastructure Ireland have repeatedly refused to do that. Now, the logic... Uh, initially, initially well, given the to minister, me, in fairness, has said he can't do it; that it's a, a matter for transport. But he took a political decision. Mm-hmm. He took a political decision uh, late, actually, in 2022, to avoid the inflation-led toll yeah, increase. That's a fair point. Uh, and he negotiated that with Transport Infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's what a minister does: mm-hmm. not sit around as an observer or a commentator, deal with the issues as they arise. Now, I think the important piece of the uh, correspondence uh, from Transport Infrastructure Ireland is this, uh, and I think you, you may have it in front of you, mm-hmm. Michael. Uh, they're essentially saying that uh, tolling uh, is part of transport policy uh, and you can use tolls to ensure that you know, built-up urban areas, for example, don't uh, experience uh, tailbacks, mm. uh, you know, serious snarl-ups and so on, and that that's part of, of toll policy. That's part of the reason why some tolls are introduced. Now, you could argue... Uh, 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 back and forward as to whether that, mm. that is the yeah. case or not. So mm. I used their own logic and turned it back on them. I says, well, that is the case. Yeah. Then. The logic of that w- should determine that you should be in a position to lift tolls to avoid traffic chaos because of works that might be going on elsewhere. And they have point blank refused to do that. I just simply don't well, understand the, that. Well, the response is odd uh, because they seem to be saying that if you lift the tolls that you've got cars on the M1 going one direction or the other who will suddenly decide to come off the M1 because there isn't a toll there and come into Drogheda where uh, the opposite is Bizarre. is the truth uh, and that what is going to happen is that this is going to result in a lot more money for the toll operator because of people trying to avoid the chaos that will be caused Correct by the closure right. of the it's actually group. It's actually going to be a massive revenue generator mm. for yeah. Celtic Roads Group. Mm. I mean, I, I would... I mean, it was as if the response was from the Celtic Roads Group but because uh, if you lift the toll, they lose nothing because... The government, the Could minister, the TII will give them the three million or whatever it is uh, that they're. And that precedent's been set. Yeah. That, that precedent's been yeah. established. Yeah. A political decision could be taken by a minister with his government colleagues to to make interventions like that, like exactly like what Minister Ryan did 
earlier on this year to avoid the inflation toll increase sort of postpone it by, by, by six or seven months. Uh, he's chosen not to do that. And I think, quite frankly, it's unconscionable. What we're going to be facing now from, from next Monday, and especially when the schools um, go back, uh, I uh, implore him and local government representatives, mm. if they have any influence at all, and that, that certainly is an open question, um, to act on this. Uh, and, and simply don't um, sit around commentating on it mm. and saying it's, it's terrible weeks, and I've written to the minister mm. and so on. Use whatever influence uh, you have mm. uh, as a government representative. Uh, and I appeal to you know, Fine Gael, um, Fianna Fáil and Green Party representatives locally to apply whatever pressure they mm. can uh, to their own ministers. Well, I don't think uh, there's any argument there. No, and everybody yeah, agrees. Yeah, everybody, uh, agrees. everybody thinks yeah. it's a good idea. Yeah. Uh, it's action that's required, and we mm. haven't had the kind of action that we need. Mm. Uh, I, I dread to see what's going to happen from next Monday, Michael, especially mm. when when children um, go back go back to school. Um, and I think Transport Infrastructure Ireland now are really they've hung themselves on a hook. They they keep defending this policy. Well, actually, the policy itself to me is quite clear. A rational interpretation of it would say. Yes, you can do this, mm. and it requires political will now. That's mm. all that is required, political will from Minister Ryan and his government colleagues okay. to do this. Mm. Uh, the work was delayed for three weeks. It should have closed on the 1st of August. Uh, I don't think there was to be any signposting or any uh, indication that there was uh, to uh, be traffic delays. Uh, as such, uh, the councillor, I think, said that this delay, this three-week delay, will give them uh, the opportunity to put that kind of notice in place for motorists. Uh, but one way or another, this is just going to be mayhem, isn't it? It is. And not just at the bridge, across the town. Across the town, because, you know, it's, it's like water when you close off a leak, mm. it has to go somewhere else. And um, the big concerns I would have would be for areas like Trinity Street and Mel, uh, which are uh, already problematic. Mm. Um, North Road, Georgia Street, mm. uh, cross lanes. Um, but it's a domino. It'll go it's everywhere. A domino. It'll, it'll, it'll go yeah. everywhere. Yeah. Um, before it dissipates. Mm. Uh, one of the suggestions that I'd put, for example, to the Loud County Council, and I think I discussed it here in the programme before, when myself and the two other um, Drogheda-based uh, TDs were on the programme, was that a left filter lane could be introduced to Trinity Street uh, by removing, uh, for a period of a few months, a small number of car parking spaces to allow traffic uh, on Trinity Street to take a left turn up Georgia Street. At the, at the moment, the option is you take a right across Bridge Peace, you go straight... Uh, Towards Narrow West Street and West Street itself, uh, or take a left up uh, up George's Street, um, and you're leaving Trinity Street off a single lane. There, there's no opportunity to take mm-hmm. take a, no no left or right turning lane. It's one single lane, and we know the problems that that are experienced there, especially mm. and not just at at, mm. at peak and times, but actually all tr- throughout the day. And that would be an issue for the council. The council has council, time to council plan for this. Council yeah. introduced yeah. a consultation yeah. mm-hmm. process. Uh, you know, I, I I made a contribution to that, as did some local mm. groups, uh, like for example the Boyne Camino group, who are mm-hmm. uh, really um, uh, put in a difficult situation. They received lots of funding and so on from the state to introduce signage and so on for that wonderful project. Uh, they now have to adapt all of that to keep the project going for a period mm. of time. I know the local authority, to be fair, are working with them on that. There's a bigger issue as well, Michael, and I'll say this, and I spoke to people about it yesterday. Um, even when the Obelisk Bridge is completed, um, you know, Loud County Council, Mead County Council, um, tourism agencies uh, and our local lo- local groups, we, we all have big plans and hopes for encouraging you know, walking and cycling around mm. the uh, Obelisk area, on board Planola uh, actually have completed the um, the the process, uh, and I think the inspector's report has been completed on, for example, extension of the greenway mm. from from Mornington into uh, Drogheda uh, potentially. 
Um, that's a very interesting project and big ambitions for the area for walking and cycling even when the obelisk bridge is completed yeah. it won't necessarily be that safe for mm. walkers and cyclists to, to be able to traverse across the bridge one of the op- options that should be looked at um, in the short to medium term future would be introducing maybe another aspect of the bridge um, to, to allow for example you know walkers and mm. cyclists to, 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 to walk and cycle more safely because as it stands at the moment the, the bridge can only accommodate you know, mm. one, one, one or two cars at a time yeah. coming from one direction. Yeah. You've got to stop mm. it to allow mm. traffic to... It was never built, of course, for traffic. It's mm. there since yeah. the mid, mid-80s. And I, I think Fantastic maybe, bridge that we I, all love. I, I think maybe um, now is the time as well to think about what happens when it needs to be repaired again in 20 or 50 which years which or however long it is. I mean, because it's a main archery into it the town it and uh, it needs to be looked at in that context. Uh, let's move on to another issue, if we can, and the issue of interest rates. Uh, anybody uh, who's seen uh, their mortgage interest rates go up knows there's nothing you can do about it uh, and some people are paying very uh, huge repayments uh, 4% uh, not uncommon now some of the vulture fund uh, mortgage holders are paying 8 to 10% uh, uh, on uh, their loans uh, but uh, there doesn't seem to be much in the way of interest on savings uh, the Minister for Higher Education Simon Harris very vocal about this over the weekend saying the banks are acting like complete and utter laggards. Is he correct? He is, yeah, but this didn't just happen today or yesterday and uh, extraordinary, this is the first government minister to actually mention anything about this in, in, in quite a long time. Um, I've been talking about this uh, and it's received very little attention over the last few months. Uh, Ireland actually, Irish savers, um, people with deposits in banks um, are very poorly looked after by the banks Um Information revealed by the Financial Times last week would suggest that only about 7% of the gain that you would expect uh, from this high interest rate environment actually has, has been to the benefit of uh, Irish savers, the lowest in, mm. in the Eurozone. Um, the banks are arguing that uh, they haven't passed on uh, every month all of the increases mm. that the European Central Bank have introduced over the last um, 12 plus months, and, and that is true. Uh, and they're arguing that uh, deposit holders in Ireland are in some way subsidising that. Um, and that's a, a policy decision for banks. Uh, I've been talking on this programme a lot over the years, Michael, about um, mortgage interest rates in Ireland being consistently the second highest across the Eurozone. They're now about the 11th um, highest. Uh, and, and it is true to say that um, mm. the Irish banks have been slower to pass on the ECB interest rate rises to mortgage holders. Uh, except, of course, if you're a tracker um, mortgage holder or if you're one of those extremely uh, unfortunate and challenged people and families who are with vulture funds who I will fix terms Mm -hmm. and I'm Mm -hmm. dealing with local Mm -hmm. constituents on this all of the time. We've actually met the two deputy governors of the Central Bank to discuss this. I'm very concerned about the inaction of the Central Bank. All you're getting is tea and sympathy from them Mm. uh, about people who are, for example, um, mortgage prisoners uh, with uh, organisations like Pepper, for example. Um, who have uh, imposed very high uh, mortgage interest rate uh, charges on people who are already uh, in difficult circumstances, albeit people who are actually doing their best to, to mm-hmm. service their mortgages. Mm-hmm. So, um, in relation to, to, to deposit holders, I mean, about I think 95% of um, all uh, Irish deposits are in the kinds of accounts that we're all familiar with, the normal current account, the normal savings account, the kinds of accounts that we get our wages, our social welfare supports paid into, and the kind of account that our direct yeah. debits come, come yeah. out of. Um, 
we have very few options actually for our servers. And this is part of the problem with the lack of competition. Mm. Uh, I think the uh, highest um, interest rate you'll get in a deposit account in Ireland would be about 1.5% from permanent TSB. And you have to actually keep your money in that account for five years. Very few people who are in a position to actually do that. Notwithstanding all of that, we have record levels of savings um, during the pandemic when mm. people were working from home and so on, maybe weren't spending uh, as much. So and, there's very little... And there's uh, been no interest. Uh, yeah, there's very little interest. Uh, and that means that you're losing the money. Banks. The yeah. savings are depreciating. Uh, but it's not just the banks, though, is it? I mean, what about the state savings state schemes? State savings schemes actually aren't um, giving attractive mm. interest rates okay. at all either. I mean, maybe a half a percent yeah. uh, on some, some, you know, on, on, on prize bonds and mm. so on. Um, so it, the state is isn't exactly of, leading by example. Well, that's, yeah. is it a bit ironic of a it government is. minister to be criticising banks for how they're practising when uh, the state sponsored schemes are acting in exactly the same That's way. That's right, yeah. And I'd said, I said last week, in fact, for a start, the state should get its act together and lead by example in introducing better um, interest rates for uh, people who are using state savings products. But I'd say this, and I, I said it last week uh, in the media uh, in response to what was happening in Italy, and this is not new. I mean, we made a submission um, in April to the um, state's Department of Finance's review on the future of banking levy, there's been a bank levy in place since 2014 that's generally garnered about 150 million a year um, from the banks mm. um, in, in very different circumstances in terms of the bank's experience in this country. When we had more banks, and now we've only got three, only three um, retail banks in this country operating that people obviously will be aware of, the banks we all use, AOB, Bank of Ireland and Permanent TSB. And this year, the levy is only going to garner about 87 million euros. I have argued that what we should be doing this year, given the exceptional profits of Bank of Ireland, AOB and permanent TSB, probably going to be about four billion in profit, Michael, this year, is to introduce what it describes as a super levy. Um, and we can actually use that even threat of a levy to try and get better deals for deposit holders and for mortgage holders who are being really hammered at the moment uh, on, on some mortgage products. Uh, people find it really difficult. There are people I'm dealing with all the time uh, day in, day out, across Louth and East Meath and indeed across the country. Some of the emails and phone calls I've received in recent weeks, Michael, are really, really uh, disturbing. People who are doing their best, mm. haven't missed a payment, but are really going without um, because of the pressure that we put under uh, by, by the banks. Um, and I think there are things that government can do to ease that pressure, mm. um, uh, things that they haven't been doing to date. And a threat alone of a very significant super levy on the banks yeah. could actually get them in order. OK, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you for coming in to us uh, this morning. Uh, that's uh, the Labour Party spokesperson on finance, Jed Nash, who's a TD for Louth and Eastmeath. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. The Ombudsman for Children, Niall Muldoon, wrote uh, to the CEO of the HSE in March of uh, this year. In that letter, uh, which was uh, given to the Irish Times under the Freedom of Informa- Information Act, I beg your pardon, Niall Muldoon said uh, that uh, there is a profound violation of children's rights in the areas of mental health and disability care. And he said, that the HSE is seriously failing in its duty to uphold the rights of children to the best possible health care. Let's speak to Mark Ward, who's Sinn Féin's spokesperson on mental health. And a very good morning to you, Mark, and thanks for joining us on the programme this morning. I doubt you've little argument with Niall Muldoon. 
No, absolutely not. And I just want to thank the Ombudsman for raising this again. Even with the Mental Health Commission's report that's come up recently, it's really, really difficult to get any media attention in relation to children's mental health and children's disability services. So it, it's good to see that the spotlight has been shone on this again. But since that report, or since that letter that went into the HSE in March, things have actually gotten worse since March. Year, month on month, we are getting increases in the amount of young people who are waiting for uh, children's mental health. So at the moment, we have over four, almost 4,500 nationally who are waiting um, for an appointment, for uh, initial appointment for CAMS. We have 735 of these children who are waiting over a year. And um, I know our TV for your area, uh, Rory O'Murray, who was on there last week, I think, on your show. Like in, in your area, in CHO area 8, we have 727 children who are waiting for a first one of camps. That's the second highest in the state, and it's just not good enough. Waiting lists are only going one way under this moment, mm. and that's up. And it's a geographical lottery, it would seem. Uh, the Ombudsman particularly critical of that because waiting times are higher in some parts of the country than in others. And he said that, in effect, what this means is that many children are being punished for becoming ill in the wrong location. Uh, doesn't make any sense. Absolutely, it doesn't. And see that postcode lottery occurred. It's something that we've been talking about since since, we, since the formation of this government. It's clear every time you get a report on CAMS and on disability services that you can see a discrepancy across different CHO areas. So, for example, if you're living in North Kerry, there's a thousand children waiting for a first time appointment. But if you're living in one of the, one of the other areas, there's, there's 332 children who are waiting. So you can see the difference in the, in the level of care. Now, 332 children is not good enough having in one area, but it's a big difference than 1,000 children. And these children are just going further and further down the list. And the children with the less kind of acute, because CAMS is only for a moderate to acute mental health care. And these children haven't got the more acute mental health care uh, needs, such as ADHD. They're going further and further down the list. Mm. Uh, we had a constitutional referendum on children's rights and we've an ombudsman for children uh, who's talking about uh, a profound violation of children's rights. Uh, does that matter? Uh, is there any consequence uh, for not upholding the rights that children have constitutionally? Well, absolutely. We need to have a look at this. And even you can see like the Taoiseach has taken in children under his brief. Now, we haven't seen any 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 benefits from that so far. And I, I hope to see some benefits since he took on the brief. We need to have children enshrined into our constitution. Uh, it's in our constitution uh, in relation to children, specifically in relation to children. And we need to have that enshrined to make sure that the children's rights are met. We can't get keep going on and on the way we are at the moment, where some of the most vulnerable children in the state are not getting the care they need, when they need it, and where they need it. Mm. And as you said, it's got worse since March, but it, it appears as though these waiting lists continue to rise. Why is that the case? So, when this government came into place, and I'll just speak about comms in particular, okay? Yeah. When this government came into place, there was, there was just over 2,000 children on the waiting list for a first-time appointment with comms, okay? That was back in 2020. We, we are now in 2023, and there's 4,421 children are waiting for a first-time appointment. There's been a 109% increase 
in the amount of young people who are waiting for a first-time appointment with CAMS under under this government. There's been a lack of urgency, there's a lack of focus, and, there's, and, and I have to say there's an inability to fix the problems that successful governments have, have created. And there is solutions to that. And we, as Sinn Féin, have presented a number of solutions to the government since, since the formation of this government, and they've been ignored each time. Mm. But it's not a question of uh, vacant positions and not being able to get the staff. As Niall Muldoon said himself, he came into his position eight years ago, and if he had to put in the proper uh, procedures and the, and, uh, in, in relation to services and getting people into the proper um, positions right across the state, we wouldn't be in this position eight years ago. As I said, there's been a lack of urgency, there's been a lack of ability in, in order to, to, to sort this out. One of the things that could be sorted out in the morning is that the HSE have a really, really cumbersome recruitment process, the panel, uh, panel system of recruitment, which is actually cumbersome, which goes against getting people into positions quickly and the right people in, in, in the appropriate positions as well. That's one of the things that could be changed in the morning. Mm. Uh, does CAMS uh, need uh, a revamp or to be reinvented or whatever way you would put that? Uh, it uh, is the subject of ongoing and very serious concern. So the Mental Health Commission came out with 49 recommendations. There uh, recently, so I went. I went through the report. Uh, it's a very comprehensive yep. report. In fairness to the Mental Health Commission, they've actually they're doing the government's job for them. They're highlighting and showing where the problems are, and they're coming up with solutions for that. That report was pu- published a couple of weeks ago. The, the noise coming out of government has been deafening, as in silence has been deafening. I should say. I've no idea whether the Minister for Health or the Minister for Mental Health are going to take on board these 49 recommendations. That's something that we need to know straight away. There is recommendations in there that would. Some of, the, some of the things would, would, would help straight away and some of the solutions that we put forward would, would help straight away. I spent the recess, Michael, uh, meeting a number of mental health um, teams and services, one up in your own area, up Dundalk, Dundalk Council Service, but I met a, a, a CAMS team in CHO Area 6, which are the only one in 2023 that have a digital IT system to track uh, children's uh, needs mm. and it's working so it's working in one area why can't that be replicated in other areas All right, now, I'm sure uh, that uh, the staff who work in CAMS must be as frustrated if not more frustrated than most people given that that's their chosen profession uh, and uh, at the end of it all they're failing children the service is failing children that is uh, to say uh, can you explain uh, what that means, uh, or uh, does anybody really know what it, it means? I mean, if a child uh, is suicidal and it takes over a, a year before they're assessed or seen uh, in the first place, uh, what happens over the course of that year? So, and I say this to me also, the people I've met in CAMS, working in CAMS, are absolute professional people who are doing the best within the systems that the HSC and the government have created, and absolutely it's a vocation for them. I'm going to go back even previous to the CAMS. As I said, CAMS are for more acute services. If young people get the, the care they need at an early stage, they're less likely to need the more acute services of CAMS. So I'm going to use, say, primary care psychology, uh, for example. There's 16,000 children across the state waiting for an appointment. 6,000 of these are waiting for uh, over a year for an appointment. If these young people and children get an appointment, at an early stage, they're less likely to get need the more acute, the uh, moderate to acute mental health care that's provided by CAMS. If a young person is not getting the, the care that they need when they get to CAMS and they're waiting for an appointment, 
their mental health is going to deteriorate over time and it's going to get a lot worse. But that not only has an impact on that young person, it also has an impact on their family, on their, on their parents, on their siblings, on the, on the wider community, on their classmates. And, and, and that has a knock-on effect. It has that ripple effect. So we need to make sure we get the early intervention and the early care for children as soon as possible. All right. Uh, I think uh, it's a, a matter of life and death in some circumstances, is it not, Mark? Absolutely, and I said yeah. it, it, it's life or death. We, we've seen, or I've met with PA the house there a while ago, and, and, and you know the, uh, the suicide and uh, prevention organisation, and they have, they have young children as young as seven and eight now accessing their services because they're not getting the early intervention that they need. So it is a matter of life or death, and it is critical. Okay, Mark, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Mark Ward is Sinn Fein's spokesperson on mental health. Michael Reed on LMFM. A very interesting article in the Irish Times yesterday about learner drivers complaining about how they were treated when they went to do their driving test. The testers were nitpicking and grumpy. One learner who was sitting at the test said that they were scolded by the tester for whizzing past cars despite the fact that they were travelling at the speed limit. Another learner driver said that they cut out three times during a hill start. Uh, the tester then started shouting at them uh, to work the clutch. Uh, the learner driver started to cry and when they got back to the test centre they were told so obviously you failed. Uh, one of uh, the more bizarre complaints from a learner driver was that uh, they went to do their test in Finglas and uh, they did the theory test that went fine, came out uh, then to do the road test uh, because they couldn't find their car. They'd forgotten where they'd parked uh, and uh, the tester said well that's a bad start to the test and uh, the learner driver felt that because of the attitude of the tester that they'd made up their mind to fail uh, the learner before they even started on the road. Let's uh, speak to Blake Boland who's Head of Communications with AA Ireland. A very good morning to you Blake and thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, What do you make of uh, those complaints? certainly not nice to hear, um, but also just a, a little bit of context in the sense that they, they are individual complaints that we've gotten. You know, yeah, neither yourself or, or, or me were there to see exactly what happened at the time. But it's a very, very, very tricky phase. Um, a lot of people going to do their tests are in their kind of late teenage years, maybe in their early 20s. And it's a very, very nervous affair. It's a, it's a big deal. You've spent a lot of money on, on lessons. You've spent a lot of time studying, learning, practicing. And uh, it's very nervous because it can have you know profound implications on, on people. They might need their car to, to get to college, to get to work. Mm. Um, so the driving test is obviously a big part of that. Yeah, I, I suppose uh, stress is something that you need to learn to control when you're in control of a, a motor car, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. Look, I mean, in, in some situations, you know, stress is good. It shows that you care. It shows that you're a human being. We all experience it in, you know, in all parts of life. But definitely when it comes to, to motoring and to, to do your test specifically, um, it, it's very good just to, to get out on the road for plenty of practice, obviously, with the company drivers and, in, you know, according to the regulations and, and just get a, a feel for the roads. Go through the situations as many times as you can. Just so that on the day, you're a little bit less nervous than, than you would have been otherwise. But yeah, it's something that, that we all need to learn to control, all right? It's not easy. And even the, the best professional athletes out there experience mm. it on the football field and so on. Uh, I just wonder if it's sour grapes on the part of uh, the learner drivers who failed their tests uh, rather than thinking to themselves, 
uh, I freaked out uh, because of how the tester was with me rather than um, controlling that stress and staying calm and concentrating on what I was there to do. Yeah, potentially there is an element of that, as we said at the outset there. We, you know, neither of us were there to see how, how these individual tests went. But uh, it, it's a nervous situation for, for the person doing their test and also the driving instructors are, or the, the testers are going to go through this process a number of times per day. Uh, at times, they may have un, unpleasant experiences with, with the, the testers as well. So I think it, it would be great just for everybody to keep in mind that, yes, this is a, a nervous affair. It's an important test. Uh, it's going to have implications on that everybody just does their best on the day uh, mm. talent to each other and if the, the two parties could work together as much as possible mm. I, I take it that uh, that type of interaction with uh, the tester really should be uh, the last thing that uh, somebody hoping uh, to pass a, a driving test should be worrying about uh, there's a, a, an awful lot involved in the driving test and being permitted to drive on the public road uh, something that maybe a lot of drivers uh, who have a full licence uh, may think about uh, and uh, could do with thinking back on what they learned when they were starting out to drive uh, and to look at what they're doing today and some of the bad habits that we see all of the time on the road. Uh, should there be a, a driving test uh, in certain intervals uh, during uh, people's lives, do you think? It's a very interesting con- conversation. It was one that would demand a, a lot of discussion at all levels, you know, among the public, uh, with politicians, with the RSA, of course. So it's it's certainly well, like, the point that you've raised there, the way we slip into bad habits, and mm. it's, um, it's almost inevitable that, you know, perhaps to an extent everybody does it. And you can see it out on the road when, when we're driving around. And, you know, this year has, has um, tragically been quite bad for road deaths. We've seen them creeping up this year and a lot of it comes down to speeding just just improper habits people as you say picking up bad mm-hmm. habits over time and it's so important just to remember that this is uh, what we're talking about you know life and death of course but also there's a huge number of people out there who experience injuries some yeah. of them quite quite debilitating off the back of this and if we can all just as you said yourself there a moment ago just remember back to our tests to when we were getting our training when we were getting our lessons and just remember yeah sticking to speed limits indicating um, of course never drinking under the mm. influence of mm. or driving under the influence of drink or drugs and just as you say go back to the principles of safe driving on the road and if we all do that we will cut down on the number of deaths and, and, and uh, very serious injuries there which is a good thing for everybody I think we'd all agree Tell me this, Blake, if you were doing your driving test today and uh, you turned a corner without indicating your intention to turn that corner, would you fail? Uh, I think there's a number of different degrees. So it's been a few years since I've done my test and I Mm. don't want to speak on behalf of the individual testers as well. So obviously there's other cars going around. It's going to depend on the junction. Are we talking about at a roundabout here, at T-junction, traffic lights and and so on. So um, I think individual situations like that, I don't think I'd I'd, uh, be giving advice to people over the radio like that. No, sure. But uh, I mean, uh, it's uh, all well and good, uh, I think, for experienced drivers uh, to talk about how wonderful a driver they are and then they don't indicate going around a corner or are in the long wrong lane of uh, a roundabout or uh, on the outside lane of uh, the motorway or stopped at traffic lights. Uh, this is a big bur- bugbearer of mine. Stopped at traffic lights uh, with a gap the size of a bus between them and the next car. Not worried about what's behind them and asked whether they can get through the traffic lights. 
Yeah, sure, sure, absolutely. And and there's so many habits you may even mention just motorway driving there. Um, we came down the DM once morning. There's a large part of that that's three lanes wide, and you do see people sitting in the uh, the outside lane, the overtaking lane, with no cars around them. Mm. Um, so there's there's lots of habits out there as well. And there's even just talking about motorways, just indicating off and taking the time as well. So you see some people simply just just turning the wheel before they've even hit the indicator to indicate that they're changing lane. Mm. So yeah, there's a lot of habits out there. It's something that we do a little bit of work on as well. We, we produce some, some pieces on just trying to give people a little bit of advice on, on that safe driving. And at the end of the day, it really is just coming down to reducing those those fatalities and those injuries. Yeah. Um, do we need educational campaigns? Uh, I, I do think that there's uh, some very poor uh, driving on the roads uh, that <laughs> you see all of the time, uh, whether it's people in the wrong lane or not aware of uh, their uh, environment uh, and uh, the fact uh, that uh, they're stopped uh, looking at their phone. Quite often you see the head down, the light has gone green and they haven't moved off uh, because they're just completely distracted. Uh, Would there be a a case to make driver education for experienced, qualified, licensed drivers uh, that uh, they would be at least getting the messages if they weren't forced to go back and do lessons? But in terms of education, absolutely. There's no question. Like every profession that we see, there's ongoing training. Um, you know, we, we see it, be it in, in, in radio or in the own industries that we work in, be it insurance or not. There's continuous improvement programs. And, and this is very important. So that education of drivers, now that doesn't necessarily mean that we have to force people to, to go back into a room and study the rules of the road for eight hours a day, you know, and take time off work. But education can be done in many different ways. And the RSA are, are, are doing a, a fine job in, in many many times of, of educating people. And um, we see ad campaigns on, you know, people sticking to speed limits, um, taking care of an overtaking cyclist. So education, I suppose, can take many different forms. And I think we would all agree that educating people on how to drive more safely is is a good thing. Absolutely. And uh, I think uh, most of us, uh, at least, would uh, agree that it's nice to be polite to each other. And regardless of the circumstances, uh, you shouldn't uh, be making people cry because of the way you speak to them. Uh, And maybe uh, that's uh, all that can be said about some of uh, those complaints uh, that were made uh, against the testers to the Road Safety Authority. Blake, thank you very much indeed for joining us here today. Uh, That's Blake Boland, who's Head of Community communications with AA Ireland. Uh, just a, a comment from Stephen in Drogheda while we're on that subject because we were talking about the Obelisk Bridge and the problems that that's going to cause in Drogheda in the immediate vicinity around the Slain Drogheda Road but across the town of Drogheda when it closes on Monday. Uh, Stephen says, when are we going to get speed zones in the town with cameras? Uh, there doesn't uh, seem to be any Garda around to stop people from speeding through the town in built up areas he says never mind the bridge this is a much bigger problem well thank you indeed Stephen for your message our phone number 0419832000 text or whatsapp 0861800658 email michael at lmfm.ie Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, just a, a couple of messages on uh, the driving test. Uh, somebody asking, what about uh, people who got a licence without having to do a test years back when uh, there was a backlog? I think
think we're going back to the 70s there for that, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, I take it that at least some of uh, the people who are in the wrong lane are not indicating are those people who never did a driving test. Uh, I think that's a, a fairly safe assumption. Uh, we had somebody else uh, saying, well, Michael, my son did put a complaint in last year when they failed him doing his test for being too cautious. That's ridiculous. Thanks uh, indeed uh, for that. I think there's many drivers uh, who would be concerned about overly cautious drivers and uh, the danger that they cause on the road because they're causing frustration or stopping all of a sudden uh, and uh, creating the prospect of being rear-ended or whatever the case may be. I I think confidence and uh, prudence are uh, necessary in equal amounts when you're on the roads. Uh, Being overly cautious can be as dangerous, uh, I think many would say, as excessive speeding and some of the other problems that we hear about. But uh, maybe not everybody agrees. Our telephone number, if you want to make comment, 0419832000, text or WhatsApp 0861800658, email michael at lmfm.com. Now, next week, Louth County Council is uh, going to enforce uh, the street parking bylaws uh, that are in place. And it means that after two hours, you could end up being fined if you're still in the same parking spot. Let's speak to local Fianna Fáil councillor, John Sheridan, who's come in to us uh, this morning. And uh, a very good morning to you, John. Thanks uh, for coming in. Uh, Obviously, this is necessary. People are abusing the free parking situation. Michael, just to be clear as to what this is and what it isn't, this is enforcement of a two-hour limit on on on-street parking on the main street in RD. It isn't pay parking, as maybe some people might believe online or some people have feared. Um, It's kind of become obvious in in recent years, particularly since Mm. the pandemic, that on-street parking is particularly uh, precarious in in, in RD. Um, There was pay parking up to 2014, but it was abolished. Uh, And that was actually obviously a good thing at the Mm. time it was abolished. What has become apparent in in recent years, uh, there's a lot of uh, parking for whatever reason, whether it's people working or people who are commuting, uh, and that ultimately um, there was a consultation period a few months ago and the decision is that um, there will be enforcement of this with traffic wardens. Mm. And I take it that that's because people are parking and they're coming back for their car after eight hours working or whatever it is that they've been doing and not a, a, abiding to the two-hour limit. I, I, I think there's a mixture. I've spoken to, to some commuters um, and I suppose there's a lack of commuter parking as well for people who are getting the bus and doing the right thing by getting the bus to Dublin. Um, there is also a lot of underutilised off-street parking and I know myself uh, from working in RD uh, there was a lot of off-street parking was utilised during pay parking and really over the 10 years that has simply just moved onto the streets where people aren't utilising off-street parking. So hopefully through the use of these bylaws we will be able to get people mm. to go and utilise those off-street parking again. Okay. Uh, do you think that there is sufficient parking in the off-street parking? I think it's there is... Um, well, I do. I think overall mm. there's about 480 spaces that are going to be covered by these laws. But mm. there's definitely a significant amount of off-street parking at the back of shops. There's also significant car parks. Two or three significant park car parks at the centre of the town. Um, and there's also other community uh, car parks that are under underutilised for most of the week. Mm. Um, and I think through the enforcement of this, hopefully it will bring a lot of practical solutions will come to light. So I appreciate why there's a lot of fear maybe this week and next week. Mm. I think over the course of a few weeks uh, and the council have said there will be a small grace period, an advisory period where they will put notices on cars. And I think hopefully that will maybe lead to private landowners 
um, and a couple of common sense solutions in relation to putting car- parking mm. spaces in place. Uh, what do you mean there uh, by putting notices on cars? That won't be a fine. It, it, it's, just, a, it's a warning. There's a grace period. And oh, okay. The council haven't confirmed how mm. long that will run for. But right. I presume, uh, in fairness to wardens, mm. that they may see repeat offenders very, uh, very uh, quickly. Mm. Um, and well, they obviously have good technology because if you're going to park, if you're there for two hours, uh, the warden uh, will obviously be monitoring you. Uh, but if you decide to go off and come back in an hour, uh, they'll know that you were there what, what been, within the last hour. What we've been told the technology is that the the name, the reg, the model mm. of the car will be will be noted, um, and obviously the warden will need to visualise that that the car is still okay. in, right. in, in, in place. But just to clarify, it's in the entire restricted area that the mm. car is. So if the car is recorded twice in a two hour period. That's when the offence, if you like, mm. will will come into place. Right, uh, and you'll be fined at that stage. Yeah, fine, yes. but 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 generally speaking, are, are you of the view that this will be uh, pretty uh, much uh, an inconvenience, uh, not not much more than an inconvenience, so that you will find parking and that it's not going to cost you. I, I, I think, in, in fairness, if you're not already, the main issue is from the fair green mm. down to the Catholic Church on the main thoroughfare, uh, where people simply may just want to nip into a particular shop yeah. and they find it difficult. I think it's also leading to uh, some of the traffic delays in the, in the town where people are actually driving slowly looking for spaces as well which mm. I think uh, is a slight issue but there is significant amounts of car parks in the very close and walking mm. distance uh, I know myself from walking uh, around the town so hopefully I think over the course of a few weeks it will sim- just simply bring a focus and by the way there, there has been while there was a consultation period there was no submissions of the consultation period um, some of the businesses in the town have been very strong on this issue um, that you know that this needs to be dealt with. I even remember this being raised with the Gardaí at a joint policing committee. Mm-hmm. And in reality, the Gardaí have different roles to be focusing rather than parking enforcement. So I'm glad Louth County Council are going to make the uh, traffic wardens available to come to RD mm. to actually enforce us there. And by the way as well, I, I did see some comment online where people do want enforcement of obviously disabled bays. Yep. That's obviously you know a, an issue where there um, is, is non-compliance. And also traffic wardens will obviously be checking for tax and insurance as well as mm. is, as they do currently in Dundalk and Drop. Yeah, well people can be very unconsiderate uh, when it comes uh, to disabled bays and so on. But the idea of uh, car driving around slowly. It's a bit like the cautious driver uh, making other drivers frustrated. Uh, it can lead to all sorts of problems. And, and, and look, mm. I appreciate yeah. it. Uh, you know, the, the obvious issue mm. is around... Uh, a wider issue of bypassing mm. RD that's not necessarily of course, a traffic yeah, issue yeah. Mm. but um, but will I, this be good for business I mean if the traffic is moving it means that people aren't parking their car and getting the bus to Dublin or whatever uh, it means they come and they go uh, and if you go to go into the centre of RD there should be parking available uh, I, for you I, I think in being able to market RD I think it, it should be able to prove itself that people can get RD they can get a space outside the particular shop that, mm. that they need um, also we should encourage a bit there's a significant compared to 10 years ago a significant increase in the number of public transport servicing RD uh, both from the Drotta side and from the Dundalk side I think it's like 14 services mm. a day coming from Dundalk so, and there's the local link services as well so tra- traffic or parking isn't the only solution this maybe is a, a call to action for us to re-emphasise those other routes that people can come and maybe even for people around the town um, that maybe were parking that maybe they may be encouraged now to mm. walk rather than um, rather than to park yeah, if they can um, what a, a, about uh, the people getting the bus to Dublin where are they going to park are they going to park outside residence homes I the, take it there's a concern about that there is and in words of one constituent even caught to me that they wouldn't even mind paying a nominal fee if there was a space available um, Michael four years ago I remember being here before the elections talking about park and ride and um, 
I was up the north over the weekend. There is a significant. We're way behind, I think, in the south in terms of uh, park and share facilities. Um, we, I think it's something that we all the councillors in RD have been focusing on for the last couple of years, and it's something that ultimately. I think this issue will bring to a head. Um, in fairness, people getting the Collins bus at seven o'clock in the morning, half six in the morning from RD, um, they really should have a safe and secure place to park. Mm. And uh, I think it will uh, very much focus the minds of Loud County Council now um, for those residents. So uh, look, at I've been mm. working with some of those commuters and hopefully we'll be able to find some common sense solutions as yeah, well. And it's not just RD, that's everywhere, isn't it? I, I mean, agree, people commuting, parking illegally uh, and uh, blind eyes are being turned. <laughs> that, yeah. that, that would appear to be be and, and, and look at there's still even mm. uh, you know I think would be a requirement for another park and share area along the M1 as well and the one at the docks has been very successful uh, and it really you see it full every day when, mm. when you're passing it so uh, I think that's something but I think there, there are other underutilised spaces and maybe it could concentrate the mind over the next couple of weeks that maybe people might say look at there's a site that commuters could park in particularly on the north end of the town mm. um, I should say as well around the fair green where that bus does go from uh, there's an amazing playground there and some parents that parents and grandparents have said they can't get into that playground during the day because, because of, of the cars. Yeah, okay. Well, that will change. Uh, or else people are going to have some fairly hefty bills because it's €40 Euro a time, isn't it? It's €40 Euro a time. And just to say as well, Michael, mm. for any residents themselves who are in the areas, I think there's around 80 homes mm. that are in the direct area they will apply for a permit and yeah. there's no limit on permits. Uh, it's a, mm. a permit for a registered... But it vehicle. won't be permit-only parking. Uh, it's not permit-only parking, and but there, it just means the that problem. at least yeah. the, the, mm. the residents yeah. can have uh, their permit for parking outside the uh, That may be looked at, though, uh, depending on, on uh, the problems that the residents experience in the coming months. Uh, I gather if they can't park outside their homes, it'll have to be looked at. I, 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 from what I understand, the permit is for the individual street that somebody actually lives on. Sure. Um, mm. So, um, but look, I obviously. But if it's not permit only parking and you can't park outside your house or near to your house. I, I, I think that would become very apparent very quickly, but equally the enforcement would be the obvious stick there in relation to that. Okay, very good. Well, look, thank you indeed for coming into us uh, this morning. That's uh, local Fianna Fall councillor John Sheridan. Let me bring you some more of uh, the comments about. And uh, that are, are coming to us uh, this morning, um, we'd another WhatsApp message from somebody who says, uh, the problem I have with motorists is when I'm walking on a, a minor road that we live on, they don't slow down when they're passing you. If you have a dog with you, uh, they will practically stop. <laughs> OK, uh, that's interesting. Thank you uh, indeed uh, for that. Uh, I'll just give you one more comment uh, for the moment uh, from somebody who says some testers do fail for little or nothing. Stupid, nonsensical, carry on with some and they don't sing off the ha- same hymn sheet. Uh, that's uh, from PJ, who is a uh, retired SGS tester. Thank you indeed uh, for that inside track indeed, PJ. Just to repeat the numbers, 0419832000 if you want to ring, text or WhatsApp 0861800658, email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Belfast's failure on Fubble wound up on Sunday night. The Wolf Tones were there, and once again, the Wolf Tones were causing offence.
And that's uh, the Wolf Tones. There were about 10,000 people there, but not everybody was impressed. Jim Allister led uh, the criticism uh, and indeed he was critical of uh, the Charity Commission for Northern Ireland for failing to take action over pro-IRA chants as he, he put it. Once more the West Belfast Festival degenerated into a terror fest with its up the Ra finale he said. Let's speak uh, to a, a local councillor David Rossiter who's uh, representing the Alliance Party A very good morning to you David and thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, I think people uh, listening to us particularly in Drogheda will know David uh, well because uh, you lived in Drogheda for many years uh, and indeed were involved in local politics in uh, the town uh, you're in Belfast now with uh, the Alliance Party uh, tell us a, a little bit uh, about uh, the reaction to the Wolf Tones and why people were surprised Hi Michael yeah good morning um, yeah I, 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 I'm not sure people were necessarily all that surprised unfortunately you know this is an event that happens happens annually and the sale happens every every August um, and you know has a, has a long history and heritage there. And unfortunately, the Wolf Tones, uh, you know, from my perspective, you know, they keep getting booked. And, and every year we have the same the same issue. There's uh, sectarian chants and displays, uh, which only only end up further provoking uh, different aspects of, of Northern Irish society. But yeah, no, it's it's, it's unfortunate and regrettable that this this is uh, this is now an, an annual occasion. You know. Mm. Uh, you don't believe uh, that the Wolf Tones should be invited uh, to perform at the festival? No, pers- personally, personally, I don't believe. I believe so, um, Michael. Again, as I said, as pointed, this this isn't just a once-off. Mm. You know, every August you can almost set your you set your clock to it that uh, the Wolf Tones will, will play at 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 Fela and uh, you know they they sing the same songs. Uh, which inevitably leads to you know different different levels of chanting and displays. And I mean, ultimately, you know, and we've seen this, you know, even down south there with, with the Irish national, uh, the women's team. You know, we've seen you know the chanting that has happened there as well. I think it's really important for for people to know and understand that you know this isn't just this isn't it isn't the crack. You know, it isn't just people having fun. You know, sectarianism and uh, you know the troubles is the real um, living thing, uh, real living hurt for a lot of people in Northern Irish society. So. When these things happen, and, and as I said, they happen annually, um, it only just goes further to just poke away at an, an open wound that still exists, um, I think, in Northern Irish society. All right, and it's not just uh, the Wolf Tones uh, who caused offence. I was reading uh, about a, another band called Shabeen uh, who sang a, a number of songs uh, that the Irish Independents said uh, celebrated uh, the IRA murder of British soldiers and innocent victims. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think there's there's been um, a number of bands, but what I think what's really re- regrettable, Michael, is the Fela actually does put on a really good showcase of, of great local local artists, and you know they're they're offering, um, you know, is a, a mixture of both traditional and modern, um, and just unfortunately they do they do seem to pick, and particularly, um, you know, they book them for the for the last night of the concert, and. It, you know, it's worth noting that it isn't just music. You know, there's, as I said, it's, it's a, a literary and arts festival. It's, a, it's you know, there's, there's conversations around um, politics and and the future of nationalism, future unionism that goes on. You know, and so when you when you strip aside the sort of sectarian chanting that happens at the festival, there is so much good work that that festival has done. You know, and and you know, I, I don't know whether people down south might know 
you know, the history and heritage. You know, so it started back in the, in the late 80s. Um, and really, it was a, a sort of a festival that is funded as a, almost like a diversionary um, event. You know, there, that, that particular time in Northern Ireland and nationalist communities in the, in the past mm. would be um, sort of a where, where, where violence could kick off. So, look, Fela has a lot to offer, but, you know, they, I think that the, the organisers really have to um, retire the Wolf Tones and, and the other bands you mentioned there, Shabin as well. Any, any band really that's going to um, antagonise or, or, or continue to, to poke at the open wound that is, that is the, the history of the Troubles in Northern Ireland, um, I really would, would strongly urge the, the, the organisers to, to take stock of that. And, this, you know, this can't just continue on. And maybe that's uh, the pertinent point that it is an open wound, as you put it, uh, because uh, we're told that this is historical, uh, that the IRA, uh, the war is over, the IRA don't exist anymore. Uh, And if that was accepted by everybody, there wouldn't really be any problem, would there, in in celebrating uh, the IRA? Yeah, as, as I said, it's it's this this event really has done a lot of work in 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 diverting um, issues that have been historically you know there in the past, and you know as we said mentioned that you know sectarianism is almost like an open wound. And look, I'm, I'm hesitant to go into you know both sides are up to it, but again, the the history of of this uh, event is it gets a lot of funding, gets a lot of funding, mm. and has done from Belfast City Council. And essentially, Sinn Féin and the UP carve up money for cultural expression. They then um, have these issues that pop up, whether it's uh, failure or whether it's other, um, you know, unionist uh, cultural expressions that happen throughout the summer in Northern Ireland. And you know, these the, the two parties just just can continue to carve up the funding. And then when these issues happen at uh, the, the event, they they point at each other and they continue to to tear lumps at each other, and it, it just becomes a competition then of. You know whose culture is more is more offensive, and look, it has to end. You know, if if Northern Irish society is to move on, if it is to to grow and develop, and you know, I dare say even mature, and we move into that sort of we talk about a, a post-violent society. You know, these these things have to end. Yeah, it, it takes both sides, though, doesn't it? Uh, I mean, uh, it means that you don't put tricolours on uh, the top of twelfth of July murals or. Uh, images of Michelle o- o- O'Neill or Leo Radcliffe, for that matter. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, and it, again, the summer in Northern Ireland is always is a difficult time because we we go through the twelfth of July. Uh, you know, cultural expressions with bonfires um, and on marching on the twelfth. Um, I, I mean, even this weekend, you know, there was uh, I think apprentice boys marches in, in in Derry, and as I said, it's. You know, it feels like we're still stuck in some ways in Northern Ireland with this us versus them um, mentality. And, you know, when we see tricolours appearing on bonfires, when we see um, um, chanting that glorifies terrorism as we as we have in the last couple of days, I think that the key thing for me, Michael, it, it normalises the abnormal. You know, these are abnormal things that happen in society. You know, we it, it is not normal for people to to burn flags of their of their nearest neighbour. Um, so when these things continually happen and they perpetually happen, uh, it normalises the abnormal, and it really uh, it's really going to take leadership, you know. And we're 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 sat here without Stormont. We we are we're seeing um, a dereliction of leadership from from a particular party at the moment. But you know, from both sides, it really is going to take leadership now to put the foot down and say, mm. we as a society, we have to move on. 
um, and we've got to re- retire the things of the past, you know. OK, is uh, the Wolfstone song uh, really that offensive? Uh, they argue that it's uh, a Celtic song. Uh, it, it would have been banned uh, from the airwaves here under Section 32, but we don't want to go to uh, that type of censorship again in this country, do we? Yeah, I, I think I would point less to the issue of censorship and more just to the issue of um, the victims of the troubles. You know, you know, I, I'm, I'm 30, 35, Michael. Uh, I, I don't look at it. I've grown a few grey hairs, uh, you know, over the, the last local election campaign up here. But, you know, I'm of a generation where the only thing of the trouble that I can remember is really the Oma bombing, you know, um, and we, we were commemorating an anniversary of that recently. And, and that's, that's where this debate has to begin and end. You know, we, we might say that these songs are either ah, a bit of harmless and it's just a bit of singing at a, at a, at a concert or, or in a pub. But the reality is this, this always continually um, opens up the fresh, the, the, not even the fresh wounds, you know, the wounds that are still there. You know, when I walk around the streets here, um, you know, I'm living in Hollywood just outside of Belfast. You know, as I'm walking through the streets, there are people that I meet on the streets that have a relative that may have, uh, may have lost a relative or they may have a relative that was severely injured you know, during the Troubles. And, you know, that's why these things have to be retired. You know, Northern Irish society will not be able to move on. Uh, you know, the Good Friday Agreement brought us peace. Have we had reconciliation? You know, that's debatable. You know, when, when these songs can, are continually sung, um, it, it only further uh, deepens the hurt on, on both sides of the community. You know, mm. when these things are sung, it's not just, you know, maybe people sing them thinking, you know, it's getting one up on the other side of the other community. But the reality is these are, these are wounds that exist across every spectrum of Northern Irish society. Mm. Uh, is it uh, worse, uh, Wolfton singing up the rad than Sammy Wilson uh, saying uh, that Leo Bradker is uh, the leader of a foreign government and should be interfering in uh, the politics uh, of uh, uh, British uh, establishment uh, instalment? Well, both, both are wrong, Michael. You know, again, both, both continue to... Um, perpetuate that us versus them narrative and you know that's, that's partly why you know when I moved to Northern Ireland why I got involved with the Alliance Party because we're, we're trying to put forward a different vision to what maybe Sammy Wilson may be putting forward um, you know that's just it's just antagonist isn't it you know it's just sort of um, you know trying to trying to appeal maybe to his own his own support base and and you know, that's a, it's a very common playbook and a tactic that we've seen from from the DUP over the years and, and other parties indeed as well but you know both both are both are, are wrong but um yes yeah, I, I wouldn't don't need to start you know compare compare one which one's worse than the other because again it's that sort of um comparison that again holds holds northern Irish society back Mm, I suppose, though, uh, everything combined tells us uh, how young the peace process is uh, and uh, how fragile it can be and how easy it is uh, for people to take umbrage at how other people are acting. Uh, David, as I said at the outset, uh, you uh, were in politics in Drogheda before moving uh, to Belfast or Hollywood just outside of uh, Belfast. Uh, what what inspired that move? Uh, yeah, I, I, it was involved in, in, with, in politics then and draw out of all the Green Party there and uh, it was it was poor circumstance Michael you know ended up getting uh, you know, a job in Northern Ireland and, and my wife as well and uh, I've always been interested in politics I've always uh, you know had a, vi- had, a, had a vision for how I think society should operate and, and uh, Alliance in Northern Ireland as I said they, they put forward that, that positive inclusive 
uh, vision of, of societies working together, you know, less less about Windsor frameworks and more about making the health service work and, and all of that kind of stuff. So that was that was really the main draw for, for getting involved with Alliance Northern Ireland. And yeah, I guess I guess it's probably unique in that sense, someone originally from down south, um, you know, being involved in that way. But yeah, I love it and really, really enjoying it and really enjoying, uh, you know, recently getting elected as a councillor, you know, serving people well, um, chatting to local people, advocating on their behalf. And um, yeah, so, so far so good, Michael, anyway. Very good, very good. And good to talk to you. And thank you indeed uh, for taking the time to speak to us today. That's David Rossiter, who's a councillor for the Alliance Party. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, we were speaking yesterday to Aon O'Riordan, the Labour Party spokesperson on education, about uh, the amount of vacant posts in Irish schools, over a thousand vacancies between primary and secondary schools. Today, we read in the Daily Mail that there's actually 1,200 vacancies across uh, the country and uh, the figures are quite staggering uh, across primary and indeed secondary in primary schools there's 10 vacancies in Louth 40 in Meath in uh, post-primary and secondary schools 21 vacancies in Louth 30 in Meath they sound like uh, uh, big figures uh, but uh, they pale into comparison in Dublin Uh, there's 329 uh, positions advertised for teachers in primary schools that have not been filled in uh, post-primary that's 199 positions let's speak uh, to Geraldine O'Brien who's uh, the president of the Association of Secondary Teachers in Ireland the ASTI a very good morning to you Geraldine and thanks uh, for joining us on uh, the programme from what I understand of this the amount of vacant posts that we have in the country uh, is unprecedented and that's before you get to other situations that any employer faces uh, like sick leave or maternity leave or bereavement leave or other reasons that people take time off work and you need to to cover their absence Uh, how is the situation as bad as it is do you think well, it's as you have very clearly outlined there, Michael. Um, I mean, over 199 teaching posts vacant in uh, Dublin. And on the um, educationposts.ie website yesterday, it was advertised that they had 416 unfilled teaching posts. 416 unfilled teaching posts days before the reopening of schools. Mm. Now, to be fair to the Minister... This situation has predated her uh, term of office. The situation has been growing incrementally year by year. It has been worsening year by year over the past number of years. It's now at crisis point. Schools are under enormous strain and it's at a critical point. It's at crisis if it's not addressed very, very, very quickly. Mm. Uh, And how will it be addressed unless you find qualified teachers to take up those jobs? Does it mean that people who don't have qualifications will be teaching children in classrooms? Well, one must hope that that would not be the case, Michael. Um, and as you know, at post-primary level, the um, teaching posts are subject-specific. And um, that has its own, its own difficulties. So trying to replace an Irish teacher or an English teacher or a home economics teacher or whatever uh, is difficult. But... It must be addressed. Why are teachers not being attracted into the profession? Why is teacher no, teaching no longer an attractive profession? Mm. 
you know, um, in the past, when I started teaching myself, uh, after my uh, probationary year, I had a permanent position. Now, very often, teachers are on um, CIDs of six, eight, ten hours for a number of years before they get a permanent position. How can a teacher live on a quarter, a third, or a half salary? It's impossible. It, it would have been impossible in the past with a lower cost of living. Now, teachers are voting with their feet, and they're moving from urban areas to rural areas because they cannot afford the rent, they cannot afford to buy a house. So this situation is, as I say, at crisis point. Now, the pay, the pay scale is a very long pay scale. That would be one issue which could be addressed very, very quickly by, by the Minister. Uh, there was a lack of promotional structures in schools, right? So you're teaching and you may be teaching your entire life with uh, your entire teaching career mm. without any prospect of promotion. And uh, graduates nowadays are very much in contact with their peers in other professions. And they see that within a few years of leaving college, their peers have had a number of promotions and they're on much higher pay. Yeah. Uh, fixed term contracts, as I've said, six, eight, ten hours, that's useless. So there has to be a change in the culture, a move away from fixed term contracts of a few hours and return to full time permanent teaching posts. Mm. Yeah, uh, and uh, uh, remuneration, I, I take it, uh, that makes it possible to live in the community that you're working in. Uh, interesting article in uh, the Irish Independent today about a 29-year-old school teacher, Kate O'Brien, uh, who moved in with her boyfriend but was advised to move home with their parents so that they could save to buy a house. And that's a, a problem a, a lot of people face around the country these days, uh, particularly where the houses are more expensive and Dublin being the obvious uh, place for that. Well, you know, 29 years of age, moving back with your parents to save, it's incredible. It's incredulous that it's absolutely happening. Um, houses are not as ex- expensive in non-rural areas as they are in urban areas. Mm. But is it any wonder that teachers are going abroad, taking a career break, to save a deposit? How can one save a deposit for a house when they're still paying exorbitant rents? It's impossible. Mm. And, and, of course, it depends on how much that deposit is. Dublin, you're going to have a higher deposit because the cost of a house is far more expensive. Interesting to see the other side of that story then in the Irish Times today that talks about schools west of the Shannon. And one school had 17 applications to cover for a woodwork teacher on a, a career break. Uh, and I, I take it it's living in the community, the cost that's involved in that, that is uh, the difference between the two locations, uh, west of the Shannon and that of Dublin. It's a nice west divide now at this stage, Michael, and that has to be addressed. And it's not just young teachers who are choosing to move to rural areas. Well-established teachers with eight, ten years of teaching, maybe 15 years of teaching, are choosing to move. Mm. from the city. So I'm not surprised to hear you say that there have been uh, 15 applications for that position because they're moving. They cannot just they just cannot afford to live in um, Dublin and the urban areas. So they're, they're voting with their feet. 
Mm. Uh, I see in that same article uh, that uh, teachers are contracted to work a, a maximum of 22 hours a, a week. As you say, you've got subjects uh, that you teach specifically. And if, uh, if you don't have enough Irish teachers, uh, there may be a solution in that and the amount of extra hours that teachers will be allowed to work uh, this year. That's uh, increased from 105 hours to 140 hours. Do you think teachers uh, will be able or willing to carry out uh, that extra workload? Well, there's two things there. One, the uh, trying to attract retired teachers back to the profession. Like, you, one retires for a reason. The word retirement, you're retiring for a reason. You hopefully are at the end of your working career and you want to have some um, quality me time and to fulfil those bucket lists. Whereas if you're asked to go back to the classroom, you can do it maybe for a day here, a few days here, but you cannot do that on a long-term basis. Mm. Now, um, the extra hours, uh, what I've addressed there is the retirement, as as you know. The extra hours, see... The problem is the public opinion. Okay, so it's only 22 hours. How can you be uh, overworked at 22 hours? But you take another 22 hours home with you. Mm. Um, All the administration, all the paperwork, all the form filling, all the new initiatives that have been introduced to the schools in the Mm. recent years. Sure, and And you probably spend another 22 hours preparing for the next 22 hours and then 22 hours then working on on that afterwards. Uh, There is no doubt uh, that teachers work hard, uh, but can they take on the extra workload if they wish to? Well, in my opinion, they can't. Because currently, there is a huge burnout in the teaching profession. Now, if you're going to compound that and aggravate it by asking them to do extra hours, and see, it probably will be an incentive for a very young teacher to take those few extra hours. Maybe now I can save a few extra uh, euros for Mm. my deposit for a house or to give me a better standard of living. But you'll suffer from the burnout much faster. I'm sure uh, it is bizarre to think uh, that teachers can't afford to live in the community that they're working. If that is uh, the case because of the housing crisis and how expensive accommodation, whether you're renting or buying, has become, should there be uh, the prospect of designated housing for uh, teachers uh, or other public servants uh, who are finding it difficult uh, to meet the cost of living? Or is it simply a question of uh, paying them extra so that they can afford to house themselves? Well, if, if all workers, if all teachers were paid extra, uh, extra salary that they could afford to live, they could afford to have a decent standard of living, that would be uh, one avenue of uh, rectifying the problem. Then the other uh, could be to have affordable housing ring fence in um, city areas for key workers, not just teachers for nurses, guards, whoever, for key workers to have affordable housing, ring fence, Mm. as happens in other countries. But it's not in Ireland at the moment. And Mm. it's not even on the agenda of the government. Okay, uh, but I take it uh, teachers will continue to move out of uh, the more expensive parts of the country to less expensive parts of the country or overseas. You do hear of a a lot of young teachers going overseas uh, to save for a deposit before they come back. 
they do go overseas and really they could be attracted back to this country if they were given permanent contracts on return. But they're not offered permanent contracts on return. So they may be invited back and then when they arrive in Ireland and put on the green jersey, as they're told, they will only have an eight, ten-hour contract. So one, if they were given permanent contracts, offer permanent contracts on return. And two, if they go abroad for four or five years, give recognition for those years teaching abroad. Mm. The teaching pay scale is an exceptionally long pay scale, 25 years to get to the top of the scale. Now, if a teacher breaks that um, service and they leave the country to go abroad and work abroad for five, seven years, on return, they go back to point one on the scale again. Okay. By the time they retire, they're nowhere near, by the the time they reach the age of 65, they're nowhere near the top of the scale for a fairly decent pension. Okay, well, I would imagine that parents are very concerned. I imagine uh, there's a lot of young people who are are very concerned as well as whether they'll have a a qualified teacher. I don't think there's anyone who hasn't qualified who thinks uh, that they could go into a classroom this morning and start teaching, leaving cert, metalwork or physics or whatever it is. Uh, What does it mean for the child's education? real kernel of the problem, Michael. This is uh, impacting on the students. It's the students who will be disadvantaged. If the students don't have um, a qualified teacher teaching them, that's going to impact on the students' teaching and learning. Mm. Uh, Furthermore, if it's for a a serious length of time, for, for maybe a few months, then it's really impacting on the students. If it's for a week or uh, maybe two weeks, well, then that can be overcome. But if it's for a few months, that's a serious difficulty and it is impacting on the students. And that leads Uh, me to my final question, which is how long would you imagine this is going to go on for in the worst case scenario for some students? Is it possible that for uh, the next term or for the next couple of years that some children in some schools will not have a a qualified teacher for some subjects for all of that time? uh, That that is quite possible because according to the um, Red Sea poll that was uh, done by the ASTI last year, there were uh, unfilled uh, teaching vacancies in half of the second level schools and 81% of principals and deputy principals, management and other ones in schools uh, surveyed said that they had to employ at least one unqualified uh, teacher during the year. Now, what's also happening the school is choosing to remove a subject from the curriculum. Now, if a subject is removed from the curriculum, that's limiting the student choice. If you have a student who has an interest in physics and they want to pursue physics in college and um, the school cannot find a physics teacher, a physics is removed from the, from the curriculum, that's going to impact on that student and their future choices and their future right. career. I might be wrong, but I think most people would say that's not good enough. Geraldine? It's not good enough enough at all at all. Mm. You know, perish all all children of the nation equally. Yeah, absolutely. Geraldine, nice to talk to you. Thanks for taking the time to speak to us uh, this morning. I have to leave it there. Geraldine O'Brien is the president of ASTI. 
Thanks uh, to uh, Pat McDade and Drawhada texting saying what a, a pleasant surprise it was to hear local man David Rossiter on the show this morning being interviewed from Northern Ireland and huge congratulations to David on getting elected to his local council Hollywood and planned boy. Thank you Pat uh, for the message. Time now though as is usual around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual there's a number of incidents which Garda are investigating locally. Perhaps you can assist with uh, those investigations Garda Fiona Care of Navangarda Station joins us for the report this week. And we're going to begin with a report of fire in Drogheda that you're hoping people may be able to assist you with. That's right. Good morning, Michael. In the early hours of Thursday morning, around 1am, so that would have been the 10th of August, Gardaí received a report of a fire at Moneymore in Drogheda. Now, the building had been derelict for some time, so thankfully there was no one present and no one was injured. And the fire brigade extinguished the fire and the investigation is ongoing. The guardian Drogheda would like to ask the public this morning, did they see any person or persons in the vicinity of Moneymore on Wednesday night into Thursday morning? Now, there were thousands of euros worth of damage done, so guardian are keen to ascertain who was responsible for this. OK, we're going to Navin, uh, where a number of cars have been broken into. That's right. In the early hours of last Tuesday morning, the 8th of August, three cars were broken into in the Navin area and they were all in close proximity and occurred between 2am and 7am. In all three incidents, the small front driver's window was smashed and money taken from the three vehicles. So two of these occurred in the Dunville area of Johnstown and Navin and the third was in Bayless Downs, also Johnstown and Navin. Now, the Mead's Crime Prevention Facebook page, uh, there are loads of tips uh, to help prevent vehicle theft. Some of them include ensuring your car is locked, alarmed and parked in a well-lit area if possible. And don't store valuables in your car, but if you have to, to keep them out of sight. So I'd recommend to listeners this morning to check out this advice on our Mead's Crime Prevention Facebook page. And if anyone has any information about the three cars being broken into, Gardaí at Navin are investigating. OK, uh, to bicycles next. Two of them which were stolen. Uh, this was in Athboy. Yeah, Kells Gardaí are investigating the theft of two bicycles which were taken from the railway lane area of Athboy at approximately 4.30pm on Monday the 7th of August. Now one of these bikes is a Carrero mountain bike, black in colour with blue writing on it. And the second bike is a giant racer bike black with red writing on it. And anyone with information in relation to these tests, please contact Kells Garda Station. OK, before you leave us, I know you want to give some uh, advice uh, to people uh, about how they're using the roads. That's right. In relation to keeping our roads safe and our road users safe, we continue to appeal to road, u- road users to never drive under the influence of alcohol or drugs, to slow down and always choose a speed that's appropriate to the driving and weather conditions. Always wear your seatbelt and never use a mobile phone while driving. Also, the Road Safety Authority have issued guidelines to remember the morning after alcohol consumption. So the only cure really is time and it takes roughly one hour for a unit of alcohol to leave the body. And to be mindful of fatigue as this magnifies the impairment effect of alcohol. And also for motorcyclists in particular, keep your distance, be vigilant and be seen and maintain your motorcycle properly. And for more on this, you can visit the Road Safety Authority website. Garda, Fiona Kerr of Navangarda Station, thank you indeed uh, for that. We'll return to the Garda Crime Desk in around the same time on next Tuesday's programme. Some uh, more comments uh, to bring to you. Uh, somebody texting us saying, great to hear the loyalists complain about Republican chants and how offensive they find everything to do with Republicanism. 
Sure, they do nothing to offend anyone themselves. All they ever do is celebrate their culture and refuse to accept anything that doesn't fit in with their way. Thankfully, things are slowly changing and they're being seen for the dinosaurs that they are, says our caller. Davian Navin in touch too, saying, what the hell is this country coming to? You wouldn't go up to Northern Ireland and tell them what music to play if you don't like what you hear. Get out and move on. Thanks uh, for that, Davy. Jerry in Wilkinson says how backwards are the orange half of Northern Ireland the Wolf Tones are a ballad group they'll always be there and if the prods don't like it they can just F off. Uh, Sharon says what a, a nonsense. It's our music we've always sung it. What about the Orange Order coming down here marching? Is that not worst? Uh, thank you uh, for that. Sharon John says Michael I did my driving test in the late 1970s and they were bringing everyone out but failing everyone due to a strike. <laughs> okay John. Thanks uh, for that. Uh, don't remember that uh, 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 to be honest uh, but thanks uh, for telling us. Uh, we had some WhatsApp messages. One from somebody who says, I live in RDS, uh, the play park. You can't get a space to take the kids out. Bring back pay parking. The town's traffic is a disgrace without idiots double parking and doing whatever they wish. Uh, Another WhatsApp message uh, from somebody who says, Michael, please don't put ideas into politicians' head. A way to raise revenue, i.e. a second revisionary driving test. It's bad enough with the NCT. Thanks uh, for that. Uh, It would be a good money earner I think I think uh, from what I see on the roads um, and I don't know if uh, you agree uh, but if some people had to reset their driving test they might have to do it more than once <laughs> there's a lot of uh, driver behaviour that is very questionable uh, somebody uh, else whatsapping asking will disabled uh, people parking in RD uh, will, will they be able to with their badges displayed only get the two hours uh, thanks uh, for that I don't know the answer to it uh, to be honest that's uh, two hours free parking um, and that's all uh, that I can say after that uh, they're saying that if you park for more than the two hours um, they're going to fine you the four Euro, uh, that is uh, the current uh, charge uh, for parking illegally. Um, we'd Deirdre and Cal saying, uh, Mike, uh, they'll have to lift uh, the tolls at Denor uh, when the obelisk bridge closes. If they don't, it's going to cause chaos. It's a disaster. These tolls uh, are just dreadful. They've two of them on the M3. Uh, and uh, she's on about Marty Morrissey and Ryan Tuberty on Barbie bikes again for some reason. Uh, but uh, Deirdre says RTE is paying for the toll. Thanks, uh, Deirdre, for that. Uh, I, I'm sure it is very much tongue-in-cheek, uh, uh, and uh, that's just uh, the way. Somebody else saying, interesting to hear you talking about uh, the idea of not parking up to the car in front of you at traffic lights, spaces as big as buses I've seen, spaces as big as 40 foot containers because people uh, just don't think about what's behind them, they don't think about what's in front of them or around the corner for that matter and therein lies one of the biggest problems. Thank you for that. That has to be the final word on the programme today. Our time has run out and as once again thanks to Maggie McGuire who researched today. Chris Murray was in the control tower. I'm Michael. God willing we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie